This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks for joining us. We'll be discussing um, radiation therapy's role in uh, treating oligometastatic cancer. These are our disclosures. All right, so um, here's the agenda for this evening. Um, we'll cover um, a discussion of uh, radiation therapy, uh, just uh, briefly to catch everybody up to speed. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the development of metastatic cancer and so-called oligometastatic cancer, um, principles of treatment of oligometastatic uh, cancer, uh, radiation therapy in particular for oligometastasis. Dr. Fang and I both treat uh, GU cancers, um, and so we'll be discussing um, prostate cancer as uh, sort of a case study to um, discuss um, key principles in the treatment of oligometastatic cancer, and then studies that are um, on the horizon and, and sort of uh, future steps um, going forward for the field. So um, what is radiation therapy? So um, about half of uh, cancer patient ther patients will receive uh, radiotherapy during the course of their uh, treatments. Um, it's perhaps a little bit, uh, I guess, less commonly known than some of the other modalities that are used in, in treating cancer, such as surgery or chemotherapy or other systemic therapies. Um, but it plays a, a major role in the curative treatment for a number of different cancers. Um, and frequently, depending on the, the type of cancer, can be used in conjunction with other approaches, such as surgery or chemotherapy. And so the process of radiation um, involves um, sort of a series of steps for uh, external beam radiation, which is the most common form of radiation. Um, but uh, we, um, uh, on a routine basis when we treat patients, um, have patients come in to do a CT scan that is used to um, basically um, scan a patient and facilitate the careful planning of um, a radiation treatment plan. Um, and so uh, essentially um, through this radiation, uh, CT, or through the CT scan, um, and then a number of computational steps, we uh, develop a um, plan uh, that allows us to deliver radiation essentially um, where we want it and uh, prevent it from going to areas that we don't want it to go. Um, and so this is uh, just a quick kind of snapshot of a radiation plan um, for prostate cancer. And the idea is to get radiation to the prostate um, and minimize radiation to other nearby important uh, structures, um, things such as the um, bladder, which sits on top of the, uh, the prostate, and then the rectum, which sits immediately behind. And these principles are used um, in general for our uh, radiation planning processes and some of the precise forms of radiation that we'll be discussing this evening. And then once that plan is um, put in place and quality assured, um, patients come in um, on a daily basis for um, a number of treatments, which can range from one single treatment um, and for uh, longer courses up to nine weeks, um, where they um, come in and um, receive their radiation. They basically um, lie on something that's similar to an x-ray table. Um, and then there's a radiation machine that delivers the radiation plan that was developed um, on the computer prior to that. And I always find this a really neat image, but um, uh, the advances in technology, um, which we'll touch on a little bit as we discuss oligometastatic cancer, have enabled us to 
um, create really precise radiation plans. And some of these are, are fairly complex, which involve um, sort of the changing shape of radiation beams as a, as a radiation beam is being delivered. And that really allows us to sculpt radiation around very specific targets. Um, and in the treatment of um, oligometastatic cancer, this can be um, particularly important uh, depending on the target. So, um, a little bit about um, oligometastatic cancer and more broadly um, metastatic cancer itself. So um, metastatic cancer is when um, cancer has left uh, the primary site and uh, gone somewhere distantly to, um, for instance, a different site. Um, so a couple of images here, but uh, metastatic cancer going to the lung or to the bone. Um, and uh, really, um, there are characteristics in cancer that allow it to sort of um, uh, uh, go to uh, distant locations and sort of settle in um, and become and form metastases. And so um, this biologic process is, is important in development. And so, um, for example, in, in um, situations where cancer cells migrate to the lung, um, these cancer cells typically have... Um, basically the ability to um, get through the blood vessel linings um, and then um, get into sort of the primary lung tissue. Um, whereas in um, metastatic disease that is going to the bone, um, it has other processes to allow it to basically um, sort of form into areas or, or I guess um, survive in areas of bone. And so um, these sort of different biologic differences um, can drive a different sort of uh, tendencies for um, cancer to um, go to other distant sites. Now, oligometastatic cancer um, is a concept that um, has been um, appreciated more, um, uh, particularly more recently. And so oligometastatic cancer um, was, um, I, I think, most popularly discussed by um, these two physicians at the University of Chicago, um, Sam Hellman and Ralph Wechselbaum, um, and was described as an intermediate state of cancer that was essentially between um, localized disease and widespread metastasis. So the concept was that metastatic cancer does not exist in sort of absolute states where um, a patient has metastatic disease or not, um, but rather that there's a spectrum of metastatic disease um, and in situations where cancer has migrated to fewer sites, um, these patients um, may have more indolent disease um, or potentially um, have the opportunity for curative strategies. And that was something that they highlighted in um, an editorial um, written back in the mid-90s. Um, and so uh, the idea was that some of these patients um, would be able to undergo more aggressive uh, local forms of treatment um, try, to try to eliminate these limited sites of metastatic cancer. Now, metastatic cancer um, has largely um, been based on, on imaging historically. And so uh, these are just kind of two examples demonstrating the, the differences between widely metastatic cancer um, and more limited metastatic cancer. But imaging has changed quite a bit over the years. And you can imagine that from 1995 to the present, um, the, our ability to detect cancer in um, different locations has really improved and really changed. And so it's been a little bit of a moving target um, to really define um, oligometastatic cancer um, for each uh, specific cancer type. Um, and uh, with all of these uh, changes with the introduction of PET scans and other more advanced images, imaging modalities, um, 
there have been also changes in our ability to identify patients um, who are appropriate for uh, more aggressive treatments. So I'm going to take over uh, just briefly here. And the point that, um, uh, that, that Dr. Han and I want to make is that the imaging and detection are getting better. And this has revolutionized uh, the detection of metastatic disease and has led to really advances in this space of oligometastatic or limited metastatic disease. Really, in, in the context of, let's say, prostate cancer, the utilization of a newer form of imaging called PET imaging with special kind of uh, what we call tracers that are picked up by the PET scan really has changed and has increased the oligometastatic space. And so there's a form of imaging called PSMA or prostate-specific uh, membrane antigen PET. And this is a PET scan that really picks up a, uh, a, um, a kind of a protein that's really only found in prostate-related tissues. And this was actually first popularized abroad actually in Europe and Australia. And so this is actually plots showing the utilization of PSMA PET in a large center, the Peter McCollum Cancer Center in, in Melbourne, uh, starting in 20, uh, 2010 to 2014. And you can see a tremendous increase in yellow in the utilization of PSMA uh, PET. And in the United States, UCSF probably was the first, one of the first centers to really popularize the use of PSMA PET. You can see that from 2016 to 2017, our utilization of PSMA PET really, really uh, increased. And I, I wanna point out that Recently, our radiology team led by Dr. Tom Hope uh, actually submitted an application to the FDA uh, for approval of PSMA PET for use in patients uh, with aggressive prostate cancers. And so because of that, I think that this technology will now be generalizable uh, to the rest of the United States. And it's not only this PSMA PET scan that's picked up uh, in terms of utilization. There's another type of scan called an Axman PET scan that's slightly less specific for prostate cancer, but still relatively quite good. And, and that has become FDA approved as well and now is uh, reimbursed by insurance companies as well. Um, and so one thing we do know is that using these advanced PET imaging approaches actually allows us to detect uh, metastatic disease where previously we couldn't detect metastatic disease. And so in prostate cancer, there's a blood biomarker uh, called PSA, a prostate specific antigen that's obtained in prostate cancer patients to track uh, whether the disease is progressing or not progressing. And previously when patients had low PSAs, we, we knew that the original or our original imaging approaches like CT scans and bone scans really were not going to pick up prostate cancer. But now at really low PSAs, even down to 0.2, which is a really low level, we can start seeing actually uh, prostate cancer uh, kind of outside of the pelvis, which is consistent with metastatic disease or even within the pelvis as well. And so here's data from these two different PET imaging approaches, Axman PET on the left and PSMA PET on the right. And really, I think that the point is twofold. Number one, as the burden of prostate cancer increases, meaning increasing PSA levels, uh, certainly you can detect more disease, but that even at very low PSA levels, uh, you know, now we can see uh, prostate cancer in 40% of patients with a PSA of 0.2 or less, and there's just, you know, in, in the past, that, that chance would have been about 5%. And I want to point out the study on the right is actually led by our course moderator, uh, Dr. Lauren Beretta. The other thing is that not all imaging approaches are the same. And so this was a randomized study looking at these two imaging 
approaches I've showed you, PSMA PET and flucyclidine PET. And you know what this is meant to show is that the blue bars, which is the detection of cancer by PSMA PET, um, is better than the detection of uh, cancer by Aximan or flucyclidine PET. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we're in the infancy of the field of molecular imaging, but as, uh, as data like this becomes uh, uh, more widespread, what we'll be able to do is not only develop more sensitive approaches for detecting prostate and other cancers, uh, but also optimize between different approaches as well. Um, and then, you know, what I also want to point out is that, you know, at UCSF, uh, this is our experience with uh, patients specifically with PSA recurrences after surgery. Um, and I want to point out that uh, even at these low PSAs, not only did 38% of patients have a spot or a lesion of cancer that's outside of the pelvis consistent with metastatic disease, uh, but that 30% of these patients actually had a spot outside of what we would usually craft a standard radiation field around. And and so this imaging approach not only detects disease, but detects disease that probably will inform how we give radiation and hopefully improve uh, the cure of patients. So at this point in time, I'm going to turn things back over to Dr. Hong. Great. Thanks, Dr. Fang. Um, so the next thing we'll discuss is, um, are there different types of oligometastasis? So we sort of distinguished between oligometastasis, um, so-called uh, limited metastatic cancer, Cancer, um, in comparison to widely metastatic cancer. Um, but there are a number of features that we've sort of started to incorporate more in our, our thinking and our rationale um, for what constitutes uh, different types of oligometastatic cancer. Um, and these have largely been uh, defined by um, the extent of cancer. So the um, similarly to widely metastatic versus oligometastatic, but um, how many lesions there are or how many areas of cancer there are. Um, the time course. So um, when these uh, areas of cancer that are spread are detected, whether it's at the time of initial diagnosis or at another period of time that's later on, um, as well as treatments. And so um, to kind of uh, show a few of the guidelines that have been um, sort of proposed as far as categorizing these types of oligometastatic cancer, um, there's what we call synchronous oligometastatic disease. Um, and that basically represents um, an area where you have the primary cancer, um, but then you have uh, these other areas that have spread to the um, other lung, for instance, in this image, um, all at the same time um, as the original um, cancer. There's also um, what's called metachronous oligorecurrence. Um, and uh, in this example, um, you have uh, a, an initial cancer um, that's been treated, and then some period of time down the road, um, other areas of cancer develop, um, but are still limited um, in number. And so those still constitute um, sort of a subgroup of oligometastatic cancer. Um, but that time component can tell you a little bit about, um, you know, uh, the biology of, of, the, of the cancer itself. Um, there's also um, sort of two elements uh, as far as oligorecurrence. Um, one is um, repeat oligorecurrence where um, there's uh, initially um, some cancer that is treated um, and then new areas um, come up uh, later on. But there's also an induced oligorecurrence where um, initially there's potentially even um, you know, more widely metastatic cancer um, that's, that's uh, 
at the very beginning. Um, but then after um, undergoing treatment, um, the cancer becomes uh, more limited in number. Um, and that's uh, been classified as induced oligorecurrence, where um, you, there's um, areas that have been treated, um, they've shrunk down, and then um, very few or limited areas um, where the cancer um, is active during treatment or after treatment. Um, so uh, we'll discuss a little bit about um, the concepts of, of how we, you know, approach uh, the treatment of metastatic disease. Um, and Dr. Feng will cover this a bit when we use prostate cancer as a case example. Um, but there are certain principles that, that we sort of think of. Um, first of all, that um, both the primary area of cancer and existing um, metastases, so all areas of, of cancer that we know of, um, are capable of seeding new areas of disease. Um, and so um, the principal spread, uh, principal mode of spread um, is typically uh, metastasis to metastasis. And we'll discuss the patterns of spread in a little bit more detail as well. Um, but the, the fundamental premise that, that comes from this, and um, I think it's probably, it probably makes sense, um, which is that in order to cure oligometastatic cancer, um, one likely needs to treat um, both the primary itself, where the cancer originally came from, as well as any areas of metastatic cancer. And so um, the process of learning more about um, oligometastatic cancer has kind of taken place over the course of decades. Um, the, um, this is a, an older study from the 80s um, that, that demonstrates that, you know, um, that we knew that the amount of cancer um, at the very beginning, and so this is a study in breast cancer, the amount of cancer at the beginning or extent of disease, in this case, they sort of designated um, that category as patients with five or fewer areas of cancer, um, those patients tended to have um, a more favorable outcome. And so um, here, uh, the um, relative risk um, was 0 0.8 or less than one, which suggests um, that they had a better outcome than the reference group. Um, and um, those are patients who were just treated um, with chemotherapy without directed um, courses of treatment to uh, try to eliminate areas of metastatic disease. We've also learned um, a few other kind of key elements that um, are important uh, in the spread of oligometastancer. Um, there was a series um, that uh, was from the University of Rochester um, that showed that patients um, who were treated for um, oligometastatic cancer typically had spread in the same organ. And so, um, for instance, patients that were tr treated for um, areas of cancer in the liver, for instance, um, were more likely when they, if they did um, have recurrent cancer, we're more likely to have it in the same area in the liver. Um, the um, other um, important element is that patients who have um, who have started with limited metastatic cancer um, typically progress in um, fewer uh, numbers of areas. And so um, a study from the University of Chicago um, uh, where patients were treated with oligometastatic cancer um, showed that 72% of patients who did uh, progress progressed in few areas. Um, so rather than progressing widely, um, these patients' um, cancer's biology appeared to sort of spread a little bit slower. 
And uh, this same group um, corroborated some of these findings um, by looking at uh, microRNA expression. Um, and basically they found that um, there were differential patterns of expression um, depending uh, that which were correlated um, with long-term outcomes for patients that were treated uh, with focused radiation. Which actually takes us into our, our next section, um, which is principles of, of treatment for oligometastatic cancer. So how do we treat metastases? Um, there are a number of approaches that we kind of um, highlighted earlier when we were talking about the treatment of cancer more broadly. Um, but systemic therapy uh, is the cornerstone of treating um, cancer that's spread outside of its primary site. Um, and that's important because um, it enables us to treat the entire body um, and, um, and treat cancer that has um, spread to more than, than one site. But there are also focused, more aggressive approaches at trying to treat um, areas of limited cancer that have spread. Um, historically, surgery's um, been the thing that's been around the longest. Um, and then uh, we'll talk about um, radiation in a couple of forms and then um, ablative focal techniques um, as well. And so all, of, all three of these um, have been used in the past um, and uh, continue to have some role um, going forward as well. So surgical resection or metastasectomy, um, the removal of metastases, um, uh, has been um, used for quite some time. And um, this is a historical series um, that uh, basically shows um, kind of a, a nice example um, where patients who underwent um, surgical resection um, of their uh, lung metastases or uh, cancer that has spread to the lungs um, were more likely to have more favorable outcomes. And I think this is the first survival curve that we have in our slideshow, so I'll, I'll talk you through this. Um, but basically, um, on the waxes here, this is the proportion of of patients um, who are surviving um, over time, which is the x-axis. And so um, these are the patients over here on the top um, that did undergo surgery um, and patients who did not undergo surgery. Um, this was an observational study, so it has some caveats of not uh, being randomized, um, but it was these early surgical series um, that suggested um, that patients may have improved outcomes um, while, treating, while trying to treat um, localized areas of cancer definitively. Um, and most of these early series focused on specific sites where cancer had spread before. So in the lung or in the liver or um, other, other specific sites like that. Um, radiofrequency ablation um, is um, a way uh, to use um, radiofrequency waves um, via a um, basically a, um, a probe um, to, to kill cancer. And so um, this is a procedure that's done by our interventional radiology colleagues, um, frequently used for, um, for uh, liver metastases. And the study that I wanted to highlight was one um, that was specifically done in colorectal cancer, um, where they treated uh, limited sites of um, a liver metastases, um, what, with or without um, uh, or they, they either did or did not receive um, this radiofrequency ablation to limited liver metastases, finding um, that patients actually had a longer course of survival um, if they did undergo this focused treatment um, to the liver metastases. So Dr. Fang and I, of course, do radiation treatments, and I think that's the 
in, embedded in the title of, of our talk tonight. Um, and so um, really uh, an important advancement over the past um, couple of decades uh, uh, has been the advent of what we call stereotactic body radiation therapy or SBRT for short. Um, it's used for a number of um, primary cancers. And I kind of highlighted a couple here, um, lung and pancreas. Uh, uh, we also use it frequently to treat um, oligometastases. Um, and it basically involves um, uh, the similar principles to what we discussed in, in our design of radiation plan. But the idea is to give precise image guided treatments um, with high dose radiation in, in few treatments, usually defined as five or fewer treatments. And this is an example um, of, of a treatment plan uh, delivered to a lesion in, in the lung. And uh, that was actually specifically a treatment for um, an oligometastatic uh, tumor that had developed in the lung. So in investigating radiation, um, there were a number of early, uh, early studies that um, sort of piloted some of the data um, to show that there were favorable outcomes. So these weren't randomized studies, but they were exploratory studies to see um, what kinds of outcomes occurred when patients with oligometastatic cancer were treated with aggressive radiation um, with focused uh, SBRT. Um, and uh, our group had previously taken a look at, at some of these uh, cancers when I was a resident, um, where we pulled the data from these early uh, studies and tried to see if there were certain characteristics that um, separated out patients who had better outcomes than others. Um, and so this was, um, uh, we basically developed an analysis that creates a decision tree um, that breaks down different characteristics and how they interact with each other. Um, essentially, in this study, we found that there were different classes um, of patients that were on these studies um, that had differential outcomes. And so um, patients with um, limited metastatic disease that were treated and had originally had primary breast, kidney, or prostate cancers had the most favorable outcomes among this group. And this is a theme that's seen in the clinical trial designs um, and sort of the areas that we've really focused um, these apl the application of these treatments to. Um, we also um, found that for um, patients with other types of diseases um, or other types of cancers, that the um, time to the development of uh, metastatic cancer is also important uh, within that class. And that um, sort of uh, uh, harkens back to the so-called metachronous oligometastatic cancer, which has some different biological traits um, in comparison to more synchronous metastatic cancer. And then patients who um, have more rapidly occurring metastatic cancer, um, who have fewer, met fewer metastatic sites, um, tend to also have more favorable prognoses. And then among the patients who have, um, you know, faster developing metastatic cancer, um, but are, uh, <clears throat> but have a little bit uh, more number of metastases between three and five, um, patients who were younger typically um, had better outcomes. And so um, these were some fundamental principles that separated um, some of the classes and, and gives a little bit of context for thinking about some of the studies um, that have come up uh, since then. So a really important study um, that was published um, recently um, is called the SABRE COMET study. Um, SABRE is actually another term for SBRT. It stands for Stereotactic Ablative Radiotherapy. 
Um, and so there's actually, there's the SABER camp and the SBRT camp for which acronym um, folks should be using to describe the treatment. Um, but SABER comment was um, an important uh, phase two randomized trial um, where they took patients with uh, a number of different types of cancer, um, but all uh, patients had to have oligometastatic cancer, that, which they defined in this study as five metastatic lesions or fewer. And um, patients were randomized um, to either um, palliative uh, radiotherapy to symptomatic sites or um, standard systemic therapy in comparison to more aggressive radiation approaches with SBRT, um, where these uh, lesions were treated specifically with the goal of eliminating those spots. And um, so this study actually randomized patients in a one to two allocation um, where uh, more of the patients received the aggressive radiation approach. Um, but the finding of this study um, was that the patients who received more aggressive radiation or SBRT, um, those patients um, actually lived um, longer. Uh, so this red line right here represents patients who were treated with SBRT or SABR um, in comparison to patients uh, who received uh, the standard of care, uh, either systemic therapy with or without um, less aggressive radiation approaches. The study also found um, that patients who underwent SBRT um, had a longer period of what's called progression-free survival. And so that, um, in addition to considering how long patients live, also factors in how long um, they, uh, they live without um, new cancer developing. Um, and so that was um, another finding from the study. Now, Sabre Comet was designed um, as a little bit more of a limited study, and so it's not a, a gold standard phase three study, which is larger, is more of an exploratory randomized study. And um, one of the, the main criticisms of Sabre Comet um, is that there was some imbalance between the two groups that were randomized in the study. Um, and if you think back to our um, prognostic indicators, one of the sort of more clear ones is the imbalance between the types of primary cancers that were um, randomized in each one of the arms. And so, um, you know, one of the caveats with looking at the Sabre Comet study um, is that there were more patients with more favorable characteristics, more patients with prostate cancer, and more patients with breast cancer, um, which may have been partially responsible for some of the findings. But it's an important study, um, nevertheless, and we'll talk about some of the, like, next steps that this study has driven. Um, the other uh, finding uh, that I think was maybe a little bit surprising for um, for us in general was that there um, was uh, there were more um, adverse events associated with the use of, of SBRT um, in this treatment. And actually there were three um, patients that um, had um, a death that was associated with their uh, with their radiation. Um, that wasn't significant in the study, but but three um, that were, were noted, noted in the radiation group, which um, I think uh, was a little bit uh, surprising for, for folks who um, were interpreting the results. But overall, in the long-term follow-up, they found that there was no difference in quality of life um, across the two um, true treatment groups. And this is from their long-term follow-up of their study um, across different domains um, in the Sabre Comet study. So an important study that, um, that looked at uh, treating uh, different types of oligometastatic cancer um, aggressively. And I will pass it to Dr. Fang to discuss prostate cancer in more detail. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, so one point that we're going to discuss today really is prostate cancer. And the reason why we're focusing on prostate cancer is in addition to the fact that uh, Dr. Han and I both uh, treat prostate cancer, it's also a disease space in which uh, radiation for oligometastatic disease has been more explored than in other cancer sites. So when we think about uh, oligometastatic disease management, uh, as, uh, as Dr. Han alluded to, there are different ways to think about uh, using both radiation and drug therapy to treat uh, cancer in general that has spread to a limited number of uh, metastatic sites. And in the context of prostate, prostate cancer, the way we think about it is treatment to the prostate itself, and that's prostate-directed therapy here. And then we think about metastasis-directed therapy, which, uh, as Dr. Han just reviewed, includes things like radiation to the metastatic uh, sites. And then we think about how to improve drug therapy for these patients, which I've termed systemic consolidative therapy in this particular setting. Um, and so I'm going to first talk about uh, treatment directed to the prostate in patients with limited metastatic disease. And in that context, uh, there's actually a randomized phase three trial uh, uh, in this space of radiation versus no radiation to the primary tumor, meaning the, meaning the prostate itself, in men with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. This is a study that was recently reported out uh, that included over 2,000 patients, 40% uh, of which had uh, what we term a low metastatic burden uh, consistent with oligometastatic disease. And so here again are some of these Kaplan-Meier curves that uh, Dr. Hong uh, alluded to. And really, I think what I want to uh, boil this down to is that in this particular study, you could break down patients by whether they had low metastatic burden shown uh, on the two Kaplan-Meier curves on the left versus high metastatic burden shown on the two Kaplan-Meier curves to the right. And uh, on the top row, you can see the curves for overall survival, meaning um, you know, who was alive and who wasn't. And on the, the bottom row, you can see failure-free survival, which is defined as um, you know, who had recurrence or did not have recurrence, and, or, you know, and, and also, in addition, who was alive and who wasn't. Um, and what I want to point out to you is in patients who have high metastatic burden on the right, there really is no benefit to radiation uh, to the prostate uh, in patients with limited metastatic disease, meaning that uh, the patients who got the radiation shown on the blue curves uh, did no better than the patients who uh, did not get the radiation shown in the red. However, on the, on the left, in patients with low metastatic burden, you can now see a nice separation of these curves showing a benefit uh, to radiation over no radiation to the prostate. And you, some, some of you might say, well, listen, you know, those, those curves don't look uh, too different, but these are what we call overall survival differences. And uh, in the context of treatment for cancer, if you get a 10 to 15% difference in overall survival, uh, you know, a few years down the road, that's actually relatively big by, by our standards. And so really, I think this is a meaningful study that shows that, you know, in patients with limited metastatic disease uh, with prostate cancer, that we should radiate um, the prostate itself. And this also has implications for other disease sites. So, you know, can these findings potentially hold up outside of prostate cancer, uh, you know, with, let's say, uh, breast cancer or, uh, you know, other uh, cancers that are known to have limited metastatic spread? And the answer is, I, I think it's to be determined 
uh, but certainly an exciting area of future research. Uh, going back to these uh, three pillars of treatment uh, for oligometastatic disease, I want to now move on to the concept of metastasis-directed therapy. And, you know, uh, Dr. Hong really reviewed the largest study in this space when he talked about the SABR Comet trial. Again, that trial was for uh, patients uh, with a variety of different kinds of cancer. I'm going to point to two randomized studies of radiation versus no radiation to the metastatic sites, specifically in the context of prostate cancer. And these two studies are the STOMP trial and the Oriole study. So um, with the STOMP study, uh, this was a study of surveillance versus metastasis-directed therapy for patients with oligometastatic prostate cancer uh, run out of Belgium. And, and really uh, in this study, they, uh, the study took patients who had a PSA or prostate cancer recurrences following either surgery or radiation uh, for their prostate cancer. Um, and then they used a new type of PET imaging called choline PET to detect metastasis. Those patients who just had a limited number of metastatic spots, again, consistent with oligometastatic disease, were randomized in this case to either radiation or surgery to, to remove all sites of metastatic disease uh, or, or just following these patients. Um, and the primary endpoint was actually uh, how long they could stay off of drug therapy, which in, in the context of prostate cancer is called androgen deprivation therapy or ADT. Um, and in this study, what you can see is that patients who received radiation or surgery to the metastasis, which are shown in blue, uh, actually did uh, uh, better. And so on the left is what we call a waterfall plot. And, and this waterfall plot basically demonstrates uh, the, uh, in this case, the maximal PSA responses. So PSA, again, is this blood marker that shows the um, uh, amount of prostate cancer that a patient has. Um, and what you can see is that uh, the patients who received metastasis-directed therapy are shown in blue, and there's a lot of them on the right side where the PSAs really went down versus on uh, the patients who were followed with surveillance shown in red, where most of these patients had their PSAs increase. And on the right, you can see, again, these Kaplan-Meier curves where uh, again, you know, uh, patients uh, shown with the blue curve did better in the sense that the curve is higher and to the right, and meaning that radiation actually uh, decreased the number of recurrences and the time to recurrence as well. And the Oreo study is the other study in this space. Uh, and again, this study was a little bit different in the sense that it used conventional imaging, CT or bone scan, to define these oligometastatic patients. But it showed a very similar finding, which is that if you give radiation to the metastasis, uh, it's much better than not giving radiation to the metastasis in terms of progression-free survival as well. And you know what was particularly interesting about the oral study is that um, in addition to conventional CT scan and bone scan, which was used to uh, uh, define eligibility for the study, many of these patients also received these new PET, PSMA PET imaging studies. Um, and what was shown actually is that those patients who happen to have radiation to all sites of disease shown on the PSMA PET scan uh, actually did much better than those patients where uh, only a few uh, uh, of the sites and not all the sites in the, uh, of metastasis in the patient were radiated. And remember, they had used the conventional CT scan or bone scan to define the metastasis. And that's why if you're using that to direct your radiation, you might miss one or two uh, sites of metastasis as well. Um, and this is the Kaplan-Meier curve showing that, that, you know, again, patients who got all sites of metastasis radiated, shown in blue, 
did much better than, than the patients where only uh, a few of, this, uh, of the sites were radiated and some were left untreated as well. And so I think what this shows is that, you know, uh, and, and this is not that surprising, but the, if you can get rid of all the cancer or, or target all the cancer that you can see with these new imaging approaches with radiation, patients do better. Um, and so at this point in time, I wanna pause and talk about a tale of two patients. Uh, uh, these are both um, patients that uh, I ended up uh, eventually treating uh, here at, at UCSF. And so, and they actually have similar presentations but different outcomes. And so patient one um, is a, uh, a patient with prostate cancer who had prostatectomy, meaning surgery for removal of his prostate in 2007. He had you know, some aggressive disease and, and, and the Gleason score indicates the aggressiveness of the disease. Um, he then had the cancer come back as evidenced by increase in PSA. Uh, and he was treated with solid radiation and four months of androgen deprivation therapy, which is a drug therapy used for prostate cancer. Um, and it, when he saw me, uh, you know, uh, by that point in time, uh, uh, he had presented uh, with oligometastatic disease to the left pubic ramus, which is shown in red here. So it's a bone in the pelvis with a slowly rising PSA uh, to 1.3. He had no other detectable sites of disease. And so he had previously received all his treatment at an outside hospital up until 2017 when he presented to me. Now, what's interesting was I went uh, back to his old records from the other hospital and I got the old CT, an old CT scan from 2013. Um, and what you can see here is that in 2013, he actually had this little spot of disease, again, in this left pubic ramus that we can now see in 2017. Um, uh, radiation therapy was given to him at the outside hospital in 2013, but they didn't see this particular spot and so they didn't treat the spot. Um, and what I want to point out is that this particular patient had a single site of metastasis that was untreated. And despite no treatment, uh, uh, actually this spot didn't, uh, didn't progress uh, for four years. It didn't spread to any other sites in the body. As far as we can tell, uh, he had no emergence of any additional metastasis during this period. Um, and so what happened was that I, I, I ended up uh, radiating him and this was in 2017, now it's 2020, he still has no evidence of disease. So this is an example of a patient who, you know, for whatever reason, his cancer spread to the bone, uh, it spread to the bone at one site, it, it, it didn't progress over four years. And then when I treated him, I was able to functionally cure him as far as we can tell uh, with radiation. Now, I want to point to another patient uh, uh, who was actually had a very uh, uh, similar presentation in terms of imaging studies. He was also post-radical uh, prostatectomy, or, or means he, he had gotten his prostate cancer treated with surgery. His cancer had come back. He was also treated with salvage radiation therapy uh, and short-term androgen deprivation therapy. So very similar treatment. You know, and in 2017, you could see that he had, again, a spot of cancer on, also on his uh, pubic ramus. Um, so I radiated this spot and the good news is that that's this particular spot went away, but you know, multiple other spots in the same region appeared right after I radiated this uh, first spot. And so here we have two patients with relatively similar imaging findings, very similar treatments. One is as far as we can tell cured. The other one, you know, really had significant progression of disease. Uh, again, prim primarily because, you know, the second patient probably had a few other spots of metastasis that we just couldn't see. And right after we treated the first one, the other one started growing. And so I think the point to make is that not all oligometastatic disease is the same. And so patient one, we always say is, you know, when we see disease, is it the tip of the iceberg 
or is the disease, disease that we see all there is. And so in patient one, the disease we saw was all there was when we cured that with, or got rid of that with radiation, he had no other disease. The second patient, what we saw was just at the tip of the iceberg and we may have chopped off the top of the iceberg, but the problem is the bottom of the iceberg then surfaced. And so for patient one, I would say that radiation or intensification of local therapy like radiation to the primary and the sites of metastatic disease is the right way to treat this patient and you know, potentially can provide long-term disease control or even cure. But for the second patient, I would say that this patient you know, is somebody where radiation probably didn't help this patient because he had so many other sites of disease we couldn't detect. And this patient would have benefited for intensification of systemic therapy or drug-based therapy um, uh, that could treat uh, all the areas of cancer uh, in the body, uh, but potentially not in a curative manner, but at least could keep that at bay for quite some time. So I've talked about two of these pillars of management for oligometastatic disease. And now at this point in time, I wanna move on to the third uh, premise, which is systemic consolidative therapy, meaning uh, you know, um, uh, drug-based therapy. And it, you know, I just wanna be brief about this, but there is a number of ongoing trials for patients with high-risk localized prostate cancer, uh, uh, where these patients are being randomized to, uh, on clinical trials are being treated with uh, more intensification of drug-based therapies, either targeted against the androgen receptor, which is a, a, a driver of aggressive prostate cancer or with uh, chemotherapy. Um, and what, 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 what I would predict is that the subset of patients uh, you know, on, this, on these studies um, who actually have uh, metastatic disease that can't be seen uh, with conventional imaging are the ones who are most likely to benefit from the intensification of drug therapy. And so at this point in time, I'm going to pass the baton back over to Dr. Hong. Um, all right. Well, we'll uh, wrap up with discussing um, studies that are on the horizon um, that are um, coming through the pipeline. Uh, the first of these is actually a study that's already resulted, but I wanted to include it um, because it, it does uh, cover an area where there's been a lot of interest, which is the potential um, relationship or synergistic effects of immunotherapy um, with SBRT and radiation. Um, and so this was the PEMBRO-RT trial, um, which uh, basically was, uh, it, was, it, was perform it was done uh, as a multi-center study from the Netherlands um, and a study in patients with oligometastatic um, non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and pembrolizumab, uh, which is the pembro part of pembro-RT, um, is a drug that's also known as uh, Keytruda. Um, this study um, basically investigated uh, the response rates of um, cancer uh, with pembrolizumab with or without the use of uh, SBRT. Um, they found on this study that uh, there was an improvement um, in uh, overall response rates, um, but it did not uh, end up meeting their pre-specified uh, endpoint. Um, but you can see um, that at least um, sort of visually um, there was suggestion that the experimental arm uh, may have some uh, superiority over, uh, over the control arm with the addition of radiation. Um, one of the important features um, of this study though um, was that um, the SBRT benefit uh, was particularly um, noted or driven uh, in patients that uh, did not have um, uh, PDL1 expression or programmed death ligand um, expression. And, and so the um, immunotherapy works uh, by basically um, taking off some of the breaks on the immune system, um, which uh, protect 
uh, that I guess that stopped the body from it, um, mounting an immune response against itself. And so um, some of these um, important characteristics um, uh, can sort of uh, define how well immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibitors work. Um, so there are certain circumstances uh, where radiation was a little bit more helpful in this study, particularly in the context where uh, the pembrolizumab by itself didn't have as great of, a, of an effect on its own. Um, an important study that's um, on the horizon uh, and actually uh, currently in, um, uh, in sort of a pause phase right now is um, NRG-BR002. Uh, uh, um, NRG uh, is um, uh, a large oncology clinical trials organization. Um, and uh, this, so this is a national trial um, enrolling patients with uh, locally controlled metastatic breast cancer um, with oligometastatic cancer. Um, and it's actually um, accrued through the phase two component, which is the first part of the study, um, which is looking at um, whether or not the addition of S or the use of SBRT improve, improves progression free survival. Um, so the study is currently um, pending. Uh, maturation of some of the results of that component of the study. Um, pending those results, it'll proceed to a phase three component um, where the primary endpoint is to see if the addition of SBRT uh, improves survival um, uh, with a primary endpoint at five years. And then the Saber Comet study um, has uh, uh, also a derivative uh, study, which is uh, Saber Comet 3. This is a phase three study, um, which is designed to build off of the results of the earlier Saber Comet study um, with a larger population of patients. Um, they've actually uh, created a couple of studies that are based on how many sites of metastatic cancer patients have, and so they have multiple Saber Comet uh, studies. Um, but Saber Comet 3 is oriented towards patients who have one to three, so really limited um, areas of metastatic cancer. Um, and similarly to the um, original Saber Comet study, um, it's, uh, it's still a randomization between a standard treatment um, versus a standard treatment with the addition of SBRT uh, to all sites of oligometastatic cancer. And then the core study, um, which stands for the conventional versus radioablation for extracranial oligometastases. Um, this is a study uh, that uh, similarly to, um, to the Saber Comet study is using multiple, uh, multiple types of cancers or investigating multiple types of cancers with the use of SBRT. It's also a phase two, phase three study um, and uh, the phase two component is really to assess um, feasibility um, and the ability to do um, SBRT um, and look at the uh, potential improvement in progression-free survival. Um, when it advances to the phase three component, um, it will actually have um, specific, uh, I guess, core sub-studies that are focused on specific disease sites, prostate, lung, and breast cancer. Um, and in that study, will be in, in those studies, we'll be investigating uh, the impact of the use of SBRT on overall survival. So there are a number of, um, I think, other questions that we still have on the horizon, um, even beyond, um, you know, looking at sort of these larger clinical trials. Um, I think Dr. Fang really, you know, gave a, a good example example of, um, you know, that uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to, to really characterize who benefits from treatment. I think we're finding 
um, some of the broader strokes in, uh, in the definition of the populations that are being studied in, on clinical trials. But, um, you know, I think there's still a lot of work there uh, to be done to try to make sure that we give the most appropriate treatment um, to each, uh, each patient. Um, there are also questions with regards to when treatment should be given. Um, there are a number of studies, which we didn't touch on um, this evening, but um, the uh, use of SBRT or focal radiation um, can be used at, at different points, um, depending on the type of oligometastatic cancer um, patients have. Um, and uh, in some of those uh, situations, maybe treatment that's given after uh, using uh, systemic agents like chemotherapy um, as a way to eliminate sort of residual areas of disease. And then I think PEMBRO-RT um, and, and some of the other studies that um, Dr. Feng touched on um, sort of beg questions to, to ask, you know, how do we optimize the use of radiation with all of these new types of agents, you know, uh, that are being more commonly uh, used in the treatment of patients across different types of cancers. Um, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm around uh, the use of immunotherapy, um, different targeted therapies in prostate cancer, augmenting the use of hormone therapy, um, and how does radiation fit in with all of these different agents and how does it interact with these, um, with these agents um, to improve outcomes. So I think with that, um, a couple of acknowledges and uh, we'll wrap things up and take questions. Thank you so much, both of you. That was a fantastic talk. Um, I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience did as well. Um, Dr. Fisher, thank you for, for your mess, for your note. Um, I guess this is a two-parter. Maybe Felix, you can address the first part. What is the, the best modality for determining extent and location of metastases? Is there a specific imaging test? Yeah, I'll, I'll take the first part of the question and then you can uh, take the second part, Dr. Hong. Um, and so the first part was, what's the best modality for determining the extent and location of metastasis? And I would say it actually uh, depends on the type of cancer you're looking at. And so for something like prostate cancer, uh, I think uh, these PET scans directed uh, where the tracer um, is focused on a prostate specific uh, target uh, is by far, far and away uh, the best imaging uh, approach. Um, I think that for, um, for cancers where there aren't specific uh, tracers, you know, I, I would say that certainly a whole body uh, MRI is going to be a better, um, uh, is, is probably going to be more sensitive than a CT scan. Um, but at the same time, it kind of depends. Like, for example, it also depends on what part of the body you're looking at uh, in the sense that, you know, for example, a whole body uh, MRI um, doesn't do as well in the lungs where there's more motion uh, from, you know, from respiration. Um, so in, in that area, kind of high-res CT scans would be, you know, would be uh, better. Um, uh, Dr. Hong, any, any further comments on top of that? No, I think, I think, uh, uh, you nailed the key point, which is, uh, that it's, uh, dependent on the, the specific type of cancer and, and dependent on the, on the site, um, that we're trying to evaluate. So the second part of Dr. Fisher's question was, is the radiation treatment in the brain different from the other areas in the, in the oligometastatic setting? Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, radiation um, uh, treatments in the brain actually are, I'd say, I'd argue, uh, were sort of the inspiration for uh, SBRT to other other sites. So um, stereotactic radiation was in initially developed uh, for the treatment of, of brain metastases. Um, 
and uh, and actually the term stereotactic is probably most appropriately uh, used in those contexts uh, because uh, um, the use of uh, radio surgery or stereotactic radio surgery was applied um, uh, using a grid, um, which uh, sort of uh, is where that where the term comes from, and uh, and so the um, principles are are sim are sort of that's that's the origin of of the use of these um, high dose uh, radiation treatments. Um, part of the reason that uh, the brain was sort of the first site um, this was used in is that. Um, uh, the uh, radio surgery procedures um, can involve the use of a head frame to um, immobilize um, immobilize the head, um, and the brain is um, an area of the body that doesn't move. And um, we found over over the past um, several years that um, better being able to better manage the natural motion of, of different uh, organs in the body has allowed us to to perform stereotactic radiation treatments in the other these other sites so um, areas like the the lung or um, areas in the abdomen um, where where there's a lot more respiratory motion there have been a lot of new strategies for both imaging these sites during treatment um, as well as managing the motion of these sites during treatment i want to extend my thanks again to dr fang and dr hong thank you so much for such a lively discussion and wonderful presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.